Well, we're turning in our study of God's Word this morning to the book of 1 Thessalonians. If you'd like to turn there, we'll be reading in just a moment from chapter 4. You can also find that printed for you in your bulletin. I read an article this week in the Players' Tribune. It was written by Eugene Monroe, who's a retired offensive tackle from the National Football League. And the title of his art, the article that he wrote was My Body Remembers. He said, every single morning when I wake up, before I brush my teeth or even sit up, I feel pain. Intense pain at times in my neck, my back, all my joints, and particularly in my left knee and shoulder, which were surgically reconstructed. Uh, A year ago, I retired from football, but the effects of playing this game will likely never leave me. Uh, My father-in-law was playing golf one time and happened to be playing with two former uh, NFL players, and he asked one of them, what's it like being in on a tackle in the National Football League? And their response was a question. They said simply, have you ever been in a car wreck? Have you ever been in a car wreck? That's the closest I can come to explaining to you what it's like. And we as a society are becoming more and more aware of the toll that playing professional football takes on the human body, we're seeing that the human body has limitations to how much contact and pain it can absorb. Whether we like that or not, whether we want to admit that or not, that's true. That's a limitation of the human body. Uh, when I was four years old, and this is, I was not playing professional football, this is not football related, uh, my dad was getting gas. And in those days, it was 1975, to date myself a little bit, uh, the way you would get gas is, you know, the gas tank was in the back and you you folded down the car tag, actually, and you opened the gas tank behind there to put the gas in. And the pumps, the lever was on the side, there's still a few of these around, and you would pull that lever down to start it and push it back up to to stop the gas. And so my dad's around the back of the car uh, and he's pumping gas and there's somebody pumping gas next to us and I get out of the car and turn off the gas pump of the guy next to us. And he doesn't know what has happened. And he's like yelling at the station attendant. And the station attendant's yelling back at him. And they don't know what's happened. And my mom yanks me back into the car. And I've blanked out what happened next. Um, but, but I found out at that moment that there are limitations on what a four-year-old can do. Right? That there are, there are authorities higher than me. And I'm not just free to go do whatever it is that I want to do. Physical limitations, spiritual limitations, moral limitations, if you will. And we don't like those. Right? We, we, we don't like the limitations that our bodies put on us. We don't like the limitations that uh, authority figures place on us. We want to be able to do whatever it is that we feel like doing. All right? you, you, you might argue, I could probably argue that freedom in both good ways and bad ways, is the, is the ultimate value uh, of American culture. And yet, while we don't want limits and we don't like limits, we're constantly crashing into limits. We crash into our physical limits uh, when we don't get enough sleep, when we don't exercise, when we overwork. We crash into our spiritual limits when we cross lines and find ourselves laden down with sin and or with shame and with guilt. So what do we do with that? What do we do with the fact that we want to be free to do whatever we want to do, 
And yet we know that there are moral obligations, that there are things that we ought to do and things we ought not to do as evidenced by the the guilt and the shame that we experience. What do we do with that? And how can the scriptures help us understand both that moral intuition that we have and yet also that urge to, to rebel against that? That's kind of aligns with what we're going to think about this morning. Let's read. This is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, and we'll be reading beginning in verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God your sanctification. Let me pray for us. Uh, God, help us as we think about this text. Uh, Help me to to speak clearly. Uh, Help everybody here to hear and understand in spite of ways I don't speak clearly. Uh, But but Holy Spirit, would you come and would would you help us to understand your word? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So what I want to do this morning is I want to talk about the reality of moral obligations. And how we know what our moral obligations are, and then how we can begin to live up to those obligations. So first of all, I just want to talk about the reality of moral obligations. Uh, Mark Lilla is a professor at the University of uh, Columbia, or at Columbia University, and he tells a story of meeting a man who had graduated from a very prestigious school, and he found out that this man had once walked the aisle of a Billy Graham crusade and considered himself a born-again Christian, and he was very taken about, back by that because it didn't seem to him like something an intelligent person would do. He himself had uh, wrestled with the claims of Christianity when he was younger. And he says that he came on the, up on the passage in John 3 where Jesus is telling Nicodemus that he has to be born again. And this is what he said he drew from that. Jesus seems to be telling Nicodemus that he must recognize his own insufficiency that he will have to turn his back on his autonomous, seemingly happy life and be reborn as a human being who understands his dependency on something greater. That seems like a radical challenge to our freedom. And he didn't want his freedom. He, He saw that Christianity would challenge his freedom. And he didn't want his freedom to be challenged. And we don't like our freedom being challenged either we want to be unrestrained to do whatever we want believe what we want live how we want we we hold that out as an ideal and yet you you can never actually do that there are always limitations on our freedoms i mean you all have the freedom to eat at the beacon if, if they're open this often you're you're free to eat there three meals a day 365 days a year Right? You're absolutely free to do that. But if you indulge that freedom, you are likely giving up the freedom to see your grandchildren one day. Okay? Like, you're just probably not going to live that long if you indulge that freedom. So you can't have both freedoms at the same time. There are limits on our freedom. Uh, this is true physically. We know this is true morally as well. Because think about how often we say... People ought to be able to believe what they want and live however they want to live. Okay? Well, then you read the news or you read social media, and it's a barrage of us criticizing one another for how we choose to live our lives. 
right? Believe whatever you want to believe. Live however. Oh no, no, you 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 can't do that. That that comment was inappropriate, or that was hate speech, or Harvey Weinstein's sexual conduct. That was actually wrong. And so we we go on and on saying, live however you want to live. People ought to be free. And then we say, well, wait, no, we we can't actually do that. And so we, we to, in order to kind of try to have our cake and eat it too, where we've arrived is, well, as long as what you're doing doesn't harm another human being, you ought to be able to f- be free to do that. And that, that's kind of our, that's our national anthem at the moment, is, is, is that as long as you're not harming somebody else, you ought to be able to free to do whatever it is you want to do. But who decides whether my conduct is actually harmful to another person? Who, de- who decides whether my speech is harmful or hateful? And that whole thing actually seems kind of arbitrary anyway, because if we're really just highly evolved animals, what's wrong with harming a few other animals to get what I want anyway? Isn't that what animals do every day? And if we're just a highly evolved animal, and there's, there's no no sense of us being made in the image of God, then why don't we just practice survival of the fittest as well? And that's what we we teach, right? And then we think, well, I need to counteract that by teaching some appropriate behaviors and some appropriate attitudes. But who gets to say which behaviors and attitudes are actually appropriate? Who gets to make those rules? Now, thankfully, people don't take survival of the fittest to its, for the most part, to its logical extreme and and throw off all sense of morality. Now, why don't people do that? Why don't people take that to the logical extreme? It's because, I would argue, there's something pressing in on us. There's a sense of morality pressing in on us. There's a moral law pressing in on us. There is an ought to the universe. And and though we may try to deny that, it's still there and we're still aware of it. We know that we're morally obligated to behave in certain ways. Uh, and the Apostle Paul agrees with us on that. Because notice what he says here. He's calling his believers, he's not saying, he's calling the believers in Thessalonians, he doesn't say just do whatever you want to do. He's saying you ought to live in a certain way. Uh, you, you ought to live to please God. And then he says, God's will for your life is your sanctification, or God's will for your life is actually your holiness. Is another way to translate that word there. You, you ought to live your life in conformity to God's commandments. And, and he's saying, look, I, I agree with you guys. They're, they're, he's saying to us, I agree with you. There are moral obligations. But the reason there are moral obligations is because there is a standard. There is a moral law. And the reason that standard is there, the reason that law is there, is because there is a God who is there. And that is his standard, and that's his law. Because, look, if there's no moral lawgiver then all we're left with is a world of 7.6 billion people who are under no moral obligation at all. It's just 
me versus you. And the good news of the Bible, part of the good news of the Bible is that there are moral obligations because there is a moral lawgiver. Now, secondly, well, how do I know what these obligations are? Uh, On the one hand, uh, Romans 2, and you can go back and look at this later, Romans 2 indicates that all people have an innate sense of right and wrong because we are made in the image of God which explains the universal sense of right and wrong that we've been talking about that actually transcends culture. C.S. Lewis talks about it this way. He says, think of a country where a man felt proud of double-crossing all the people who had been kindest to him. All right? And then he says, you might as well try to find a country where two and two made five. Selfishness has never been admired. He goes on to say, imagine a man who says that there's no right and wrong. This man may break his promise to you, but the minute you break your promise to him, he's going to be screaming, that's not fair. Because he's, he really is aware that there are standards. So there's this general sense of right and wrong that, that all people everywhere have inside of us. But because of the effects of sin, that sense, that awareness of right and wrong is distorted in greater and and lesser degrees. Uh, We harden our conscience. Uh, We suppress the truth that we're aware of. So the the heart of man with regard to this is not always a reliable guide. It's kind of like a GPS when you've come to a dead end and, and you can only go right or left and it's telling you you need to go straight ahead. It's, our hearts are not always reliable guides. So what is a reliable guide? If we tend to distort what's in our hearts, how do I know what my moral obligations are? The claim of Christianity is that God has actually revealed those to us. That He has revealed that to us in the Scriptures. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 in our text here, we urge you that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Verse 2 for you know what instructions we gave you through, or it can be translated, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is constantly saying in Thessalonians, we're thankful that you received our words, not simply as the words of men, but as what they are, the actual words of God. And so his claim is that the instructions that he is giving them are not simply human instructions, but they are God's instructions for the Thessalonians and for us. And so what the Bible is saying is that this shows us, the Bible shows us how we ought to live in order to please God. It shows us what God expects of us. So we've got this built-in sense of moral obligation, which we tend to repress or ignore. But then our moral obligations are clearly spelled out in the Word of God for us and His revelation to us. Uh, We're not left in this Book of Eli type of world. For those of you who remember that movie with Denzel Washington where there's only one copy of the Bible left and he's trying to get it across the country and and no one else is really aware of it and it just uh, disintegrates into moral degeneracy because there's no word from above. We do have a word from above. We're not left in a world of simply popular opinion or um, taking a vote on what is right and wrong or survival of the fittest or a world where there's no way to say for sure what's right or what's wrong. And that's good. So the question then becomes, well, so what do I, what do, I do? I just, if we're going to make this a better world, then we just need to all get straight about that and put those things into action. 
There's a moral lawgiver. He's given us a moral law. If we would just do what he tells us to do, then everything would be, you know, everything would be cool. Well, if only. Uh, C.S. Lewis again says, these then are the two points I want to make. First, that human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. Second, that they do not in fact behave that way. They know the law of nature, they break it. These two facts are the foundations of all clear thinking about ourselves and the universe we live in. In other words, we've we've got this word from above, this innate sense of right and wrong, but we don't want that. We don't want someone else telling us what to do. We don't want to say, thy will be done. That goes against our grain. We want to say, my will be done. So, how do I begin to live like I ought to live? If I've got these directions, and yet I don't really want these directions, and I want to do my own thing, uh, how do I become someone who actually lives like I ought to live? I want to suggest three things to you here. Uh, We need rescue, we need reorientation, and we need time. Uh, First of all, we need rescue need rescue. See, when I'm confronted with these moral obligations, I can't decide, oh, wow, that's right, and just simply go out and start working harder to do them, hoping that that's going to make everything okay. Because my ignoring of God's moral obligations has actually brought me underneath His wrath. Um, My ignoring of God's moral obligations is not morally neutral, in other words. All right, it's, it's not like my choice of a favorite football team uh, or a, a favorite book or a favorite color. You know, some people like Clemson, some people like Carolina, some people like Lord of the Rings, some people like Harry Potter, some people like green, some people like blue. We can't just extend that to other things and say, well, some people like to tell the truth, some people like to tell lies, some people like to steal, some people like to be generous. Some people like to have sex with whoever they want to have sex with, as many people as they can. Some people prefer monogamy and the relationship of uh, marriage and and with another person. And these are all just preferences. We can't say that. Because when when we break these commandments, we are breaking God's law. And we are rebelling against him. And we're like the, <clears throat> Susan had a, somebody from her school, they, they took their school to the kindergartners, and maybe other grades too, <clears throat> to see a play the other day. And one of the kids got fed up with it and just like flipped off the performers about halfway through. It was like, I'm, I'm just done with this. And, and that's, that's kind of what we're doing with God. And we say, I don't, I don't particularly enjoy or like your Commandments. I'm going to do what I want to do. And, and God's justice demands that we be punished for that rebellion. There are consequences. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. But it's not just that I need rescue from punishment. I need rescue from slavery too. Because when, when we reject God as ultimate... Something else always comes in to be the ultimate thing in our lives. We're going to bow down to something else. Food, pleasure, success, comfort, uh, what other people think of me, fame and glory. 
And the things that become ultimate in my life are the things that I begin to worship, and the things that I worship are the things that control me and that I, that I serve. Uh, there's a story told, and, and uh, this is, sounds a bit apocryphal, but there's a story told of a 14th century duke who lived in what is now Belgium. And he was named Reynald. And he was often called by his Latin nickname, which meant fat. You know, Reynald the Fat, because this, this guy was severely overweight. And one day his younger brother revolted against Reynald and he imprisoned him. And the way he had imprisoned him was that he built a room around him in the castle. Now this room had windows and it had a fairly normal sized door. And he said to Reynald, when you can get out of this room, I'll give you your title back and I'll give you all your property and possessions back. And so this doesn't sound like much of a prison, right? So all Reynald has to do is walk through the door, walk through the window to get out. Well, his brother knew his weakness for food. And so what he did every day was he sent the Wade's Buffet into this room. He said, you don't just get meat and three. You get three meats and ten vegetables and apple pie and peanut butter pie and pecan pie. He sent all that in there every day. And Reynold could not say no to the food that was sitting in front of him. And so he could never lose the weight to be skinny enough to get out of the prison. Now you can understand why I say, I don't know if it's a true story or not. But, but it, it makes the point that the things that we love, uh, the things that we cling to, they, they rule us. They enslave us. He could not get over his desire for food in order to simply free himself from the prison that he was in. Our idols enslave us. So even though we need to turn away from them to God, we can't. And so we need rescue not only from punishment, we need rescue from our slavery also. Um, And that's where the gospel comes in. Uh, The gospel of God is what Paul calls it in Thessalonians. The gospel brings forgiveness and rescue from punishment as Jesus comes and he stands in our place and he's condemned for our sins on the cross. And as God then enlightens uh, the eyes of our hearts so that we can see the glory of what he has done for us in Christ, that begins to give us a new appetite and a new willingness to serve this new master and to follow Jesus. Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In other words, all all your other masters will enslave you, but I can set you free. Uh, Tim Keller writing about this passage writes that Jesus is saying, I call you only to do those things you were created to do. And you will find, therefore, that my yoke is easy. I put on you the burden of following me, but I have already paid the price so that when you fail, you will be forgiven. I've taken off the burdens that other people have. I've removed the burden of earning your own salvation through your striving and effort. I remove the burden of guilt or shame for past offenses. I've taken off the burden of having to prove yourself worthy of love. 
I am therefore the only Lord and Master who if you find me will satisfy you and if you fail me will forgive you. We need rescue. We need rescue from punishment. Uh, We need rescue from slavery and that comes in Christ. But then we need reorientation because we've spent our entire lives um, living for ourselves. We need, uh, maybe rewiring is a better word. We need the old faulty wiring in the house to be removed and new wiring to be put in. Or uh, imagine if you've been a fan of one football team your entire life and you find out that they're actually the evil empire and there's nothing good about them. And I'm not, you can fill in your own teams here. All right. And, but you, you've been devoted to this team. Uh, and, and you find out there's nothing good about them, and so you have to transfer your allegiance to the team that is goodness and light, and and start wearing their team colors. All right, that so so pick your rival and imagine switching to your rival, like finding that out about yourself, and then switching. Like e- even if you like believe that was true and made that switch, that would take some getting used to. That would take some some reorienting in your life. Um, and, and that's what it's like when we come to Christ. You know, we've, we've been living to please ourselves. And now I've got to think about, wait, what does it look like to live to please God? What does it look like to live to follow God's heart and not just my heart and what I want to do when I wake up in the morning? Uh, you, you know, we've we, we spent our lives living in this what's in it for me mentality. What gives me comfort? What gives me pleasure? And now... Paul's saying, no, you've got to live to please God. We spend our entire lives trying to get other people to like us and approve of us and desire us and to praise us. And now we have to learn to hear the voice of God saying, I love you so much that I gave my son for you. I have to believe that God takes the light in me and rejoices over me with singing. I have to be reoriented to that. And as I see that, as I see his love for me, that frees me from my slavery to the opinions of others and reorients my life towards him. So if I'm going to live how I ought, I need rescue, I need reorientation, and I need time. Um, Paul here says... Well, how you verse one, how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And he says that again. He's going to say that again later in this chapter. You're doing this, and now I want you to do so more and more. And what that tells us is that growing in holiness, learning to live a life that pleases God, is a process. You don't just become a Christian and suddenly have it all together. It's a process. It takes time. And if you're new to the faith, that's, that's huge for you to understand because so many young Christians get frustrated because sanctification, growth and grace seems so slow. But it is a process. And it does take time. It involves putting off old habits and putting on new habits. It involves uh, a dependent discipline in our pursuit of holiness. It involves learning what it means to use the means of grace and how to read the Bible and, and how to pray. And it involves failing and sinning and repenting and running back to Jesus again in faith. 
running back to what we confessed this morning in our confession of faith, that yeah, I am a massive screw-up, but Jesus died for massive screw-ups. And my salvation doesn't depend on Jesus plus me. It depends on Jesus alone. And I have to run back to that. But then I have to remember that this Jesus who saved me, saved me so that I might become holy. Saved me so that I might become someone who gladly carries out the moral obligations of this God in whose image I'm made. Of this God who redeemed me by the blood of His Son. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, here's God's will for you. You know, we're always, we wrestle, what's God's will for my life? What's God's will for my life? God's will for your life is your sanctification. But whatever you're doing, it's your sanctification. It's your holiness. And we're told in Philippians that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. That God who began this work of sanctification in us is going to be faithful to complete it. And that's good news for us. I'll close with this. I told y'all probably two or three months ago, my mother-in-law had had owned a a convertible BMW in college that had once belonged to Elvis Presley. And that car eventually wound up in the BMW Museum in Spartanburg County. But when they found that car, um, it was in somebody's barn just kind of sitting there rusting away and the guy was actually planning to use it for parts. He didn't know whose car he had sitting in his barn. Y'all, we're like that car that's sitting in a barn rusting away and God has reached down to us in the gospel and he's pulled us out of there to rescue us and to restore us to the glory that we were meant to have. And that's the, the glory of holiness. And the glory of of walking with Him and walking in a way that pleases Him. And that's good news that He intends to restore us. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray um, that maybe if there's somebody here who doesn't um, see the moral obligation we all live under, or they're trying to suppress it, that you would bring that to the forefront of their minds. That they would see that we are created in your image, that you are our owner, that we are obliged to obey you. Yet none of us want to. And so we stand in need of of rescue and reorientation. And so, Father, I pray that you might work that rescue and work that reorientation in lives. I pray that you would continue to, to reorient those of us who are believers because we do so quickly run back to wanting to live in ways where we're just trying to please ourselves. Uh, Make our desire your desire. Uh, Make our desire that that we would be holy. Make our desire that we would want to walk in a way that is pleasing to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.